Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Hi, it's going very well, Andrew. How is it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning with us, uh, be sure to check out all of our other content. Wherever you are listening or watching us right now, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. You know, YouTube, they deleted the ability to see how many people thumbs down your video. It's not public anymore. Oh, good. So they're... Uh, because we had very high numbers of that, right? <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> did. No, we did it. They need to... Um, I actually think we probably, we had to have had one of the best ratios out there. It was usually close to 100% thumbs up. Yeah. It'd be like 40 up and like no doubt. I don't no know who'd be finding us and uh, who it suggested to and then they go, oh, I wish it was uh, shorter and about Bitcoin. Yeah, no. My favorite one is like when you upload a video and like five minutes later, there's a thumbs down. I'm like, did you even watch it? Yeah. It sounds like you just don't like the way I look or something like that. Yeah. They need to disable uh, comments instead of disabling the thumbs down. I know, right? Well, actually, I have the ability to do that. Well, you can disable the comments. Yeah. Yeah. But I do read the comments. People, uh, People have been saying some nice things. Do you read the comments? No, no. I Even when I did articles, I didn't read comments. And that's always your yeah. advice to people when um, uh, they're I, I talking about putting email, stuff though, on there. So internet. people could send it to me. Yeah. And I've talked about that. People are much more um, uh, polite or whatever in an email. I guess they think about it more. It's not that they, they may have criticisms or whatever to say, but they do think about it more before sending it to you and stuff like that with an email. Which is strange because, and and when people, in the beginning, people started talking, when email first started, people talked about how uncivil people were with uh, email. That could be so much more than a letter. But yeah, um, whereas a comment, I guess, I guess you just saw it, you pause in the middle of the video, you're angry, mm-hmm. you type it out. You're also playing to an audience there, which is part of it, you mm-hmm. know, instead of a personalized one where they know that that email's not going to be shared, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, funny. Anyways, in today's podcast, we are going to continue on with our Q&A series. Uh, We're picking up uh, from December 14th, uh, which is when I did the last call for questions. But I did say that we would come back to this. So we are going uh, to do that right now. Uh, The first question comes from Harry and he asks, has Jeff revisited OTCM? Prices up a lot, but so are cash flows. Also, are any overseas markets attractive to you at the moment? Okay, uh, we can go to QuickFS to look up OTCM. So OTCM is OTC Markets. They run the um, pink sheets. The, now they have that thing called the Expert Market, the OTC, uh, different tiers, including a lot of foreign, large foreign stocks that are on it, but also all the you know the penny stocks and things like that. And they run the website OTCMarkets.com, which I recommend as a place to look for these little kinds of stocks and stuff. Also known as your second. Uh, I'd say it's, yeah, probably the second most uh, behind QuickFS, which you go to, right? Check all uh, your stock prices there. SEC, Edgar, um, OTC Markets is where I check all my stock prices and stuff, and then QuickFS for details. Those three are the most, uh, the, the websites I basically go to, yeah. Um, OTC Markets, you can also get long-term charts and things on that. It's fairly clean and not giving you a lot of other stuff. I, of course, block all, like, ads. As I say, those are the only three that you allow Whatever, through, right? so, yeah. Um, there may be ads and things I'm not seeing. But, uh, yeah, so, it, obviously, there's been a lot of froth in the market in, in their area of it. And uh, as a result, they've had a lot more non-professional users they started to sign up some more companies during covid they they didn't weren't really growing company um signups so companies sign up with them to get on these different tiers and to put information out and all that kind of thing sort of as an alternative to being listed 
And, um, but then they also have these sort of, um, they're like trading platforms. They're ways of communicating between investors. So that's to get information like quotes and things like that to see in depth, you know, um, to see bids and asking what different, um, participants are putting out, but also to be able to communicate with each other and to, to arrange buying and selling sort of like we used to say, um, that a stock trades by appointment. Well, you know, that's, those are pink sheet stocks and it's OTC how it works. So all that kind of stuff. So they have, um, uh, they make a lot of their money from things like Bloomberg and those things taking their data, you know, because they obviously have the data on, on the prices and uh, volume and all of that for their stocks that trade there that aren't on listed exchanges. But the thing lately has been the non-professional users has grown a lot. And so that has led to better results. If we look quarterly, we might be able to see it more. Uh, so if you, let's see, yeah. So if we go to, let's see, um, yeah, you saw like revenue growth and things like that, you may see you have sped up. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah. Starting in the back half of 2020, you start to see more extreme revenue growth year over year, right? So it started to grow in the 2050, you know, 60 to 40 to 60% in the last three quarters or so. And that's obviously pretty extreme because they have a bit of a, a leverage, uh, you know, operating leverage. So from a year ago, their operating margins went from like 30% to like 40% now. I would assume that's a short term thing, the, non, the huge growth in non professional. Just like crypto, cannabis, things like that are just things that happen. They go away. There'll be another fad sometime that are popular. Um, but I think the other parts of the business are doing fine. They raised some prices on some stuff a while ago, um, and they're still able to get people for listings. I don't see a lot of problems that way. Uh, stock is not super cheap, as you can see. It's always been kind of like this, though. Yeah, so officially it says the free cash flows 17 times. Um, however, they don't really use their float. They just let it sit there. So backing out the float isn't necessarily the best thing to do. If they took their float in like, you know, just put it in an index fund or something, then that would be an appropriate number to use. Or if they were willing to buy back stock with that float, but they never put any debt on this business and use the float. So uh, if we can look at the balance sheet, you could see the float. Um, it's just a warning to people where they think they have excess cash. So you see there they have 50 million in cash. However, if we go down to the liabilities, the deferred revenue is about 20. So they only have about 30 million in um excess cash the rest of it they would consider like float which you could use but you know a lot of companies would but i don't think they ever will um maybe yeah. we should send this to the ceo he's on twitter he's on twitter yeah, yeah. i'll send it to him just uh, yeah i don't DM know what, him. i don't know what they would do with it of course because if you invest in anything it's kind of correlated to what you yourself are doing but yeah no i mean yes if you look over time how much has the float grown so deferred revenue was uh, not a big oh no we're looking at quarterly yeah. <laughs> um yeah i would have expected there yeah, we go so it's got deferred revenue was four million um 10 years ago and that's 20 million we just said yeah something like that mm -hmm. yep oh exactly. there's two so four oh, actually there's some deferred revenue that's long-term deferred i didn't realize that but it's so minor i don't know why that's happening they do a calendar year thing so maybe if it falls just outside the calendar mm -hmm. year someone could have signed up for like 13 months yeah but from four to 20 yeah so from four to 20, so your, your flow quintupled, you know, in, in 10 years, that's not bad. Um, but that's 16 million of a source of funding that you have, if you had invested that 16 million in, in something like an insurance company would or whatever, you know, you might've gotten better results from that. It's not a big deal. I did the math one time. It, it's not some huge thing. I could do it in terms of what their earnings would be higher. If we go, we can see. if we go to the, um, 
income statement we could probably see. Uh, earnings per share lately have been what? Yeah. So um, on a TTM basis, about two dollars and twenty six cents. Yeah. I mean, so obviously it's not a, a huge difference that you have, but if you had, you know, 20 million that you were investing that float, they, they have more than that, but that's the float and something like a stock market, obviously, then you'd be getting about 2 million from that. Then we see that the shares out are 12 million. So obviously, you know, you take 2 million divided by 12 million, you know, and, and you um, factor that out and you would see that, you know, at pretty soon it would be the point where, where would they be making like 10 cents or something like that extra per you know the, their book value would be going up by like 10 cents and of course they have 30 million extra in cash it's just something to think about whatever their their cash is not being used clip it send it um, to him <laughs> just kidding uh which is fine but anyway so because of that the free cash flow i think is a little misleading the ev to free cash flow however they are extremely free cash flow generative i agree with that part of it so i don't think they are as cheap as the ev to free cash flow suggests just warning people that i don't think they're going to use all of their cash to buy back their stock or something they could do that obviously i'm sure that you know they're getting to a size where they may get a call from someone how about we you know borrow um you know three times your ebitda add it with the cash you have on hand to buy back you know a huge amount of your company stock or whatever um because they're pretty um consistent business and stuff uh so but i also think the pe is a little misleading they are more cash flow generative and their qualities that they have that are better than your average company. They convert more of their reported earnings into free cash flow, basically. And so as a result, I don't think this stock is really trading at 26 times earnings. But I also don't know that it's you can be so sure it's trading at like 18 or whatever, 17, we said the EV to free cash flow. So it's in that neighborhood. In today's market, I think you're getting a better than average business to me more predictable than average more of a moat than average at an average multiple for today's market now an average multiple for today's market is not the average multiple that they've been at at all times i will admit this company is trading for more than 15 times earnings which is probably about the average if you go back you know 100 years or something that stocks have traded at so you could say it's a slightly premium price you know compared to history uh see for instance you have 18 times ebitda that sounds very scary uh, 20 times pre-tax, you know, things like that. So obviously those seem worrying. Uh, but, you know, I, I just, I don't think that you're paying a huge price, but you are paying a fancy price somewhat. Um, it, I don't think you're paying much more than the average price for s- stocks today, but it's not low. So mm-hmm. I, I don't want anyone to think this is a low value type stock. Uh, price to sales, seven and a half. EV to sales, seven. That is not crazy, if I think your operating margin be 35%, look, we bought the stock. Uh, so obviously I thought, you know, in a year we can go back and see what year it was or whatever. But obviously that means I probably thought the operating margin at 35% wasn't crazy. So, and you know, they, since I bought it, they did have a year where it went down to 30%. Uh, they changed some headquarters stuff. They did some other things. I think there was more expense stuff, to be honest, there than, than anything else. Mm-hmm. And then uh, th- this most recent year, they were at 30%, but they'll be at close to 40% for 2021. So, you know, if, if you're at 35% operating margin, you can afford to pay seven times sales. I'm not saying it's a value stock, but I'm saying that's actually seven times sales is, is appropriate for a stock that has a 35% operating margin because, you know, uh, of this quality. This is something with no assets. We we do need to, like, if you're not Generate watching this slow, on video, yeah. this is important, that I'm not saying go out and buy all 25 times P stocks, but 
this is a stock that has had a return on invested capital of what um, and return on equity is really what we should use. So return on equity is even including the fact that they have excess cash. 40 to 100% or something like that. I guess they had a year where they had 30 or something like that. But in recent years, they've been at, uh, the officially the return on equity was 85%, 108%, 88%, 98%. Very high. Yeah, that's high. Mm-hmm. So With no debt yeah. and some cash, some excess cash. Yeah, And ran high. by what you would probably call an owner-operator. Ba- basically founder, mm-hmm. really like refounded the company, yeah. yeah. And he owns how much of the stock? A good amount? A huge amount, actually, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and given how little the stock trades, yeah, it's not going to be sold or anything unless he wants to sell it. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Is it 2022 yet? It sure is. Um, let's see. <laughs> so they're guessing how long it would be before they could get yeah, on Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Is it, uh, from Vetla, Baba is looking cheap. Also 50% lower than when Munger bought. Thoughts? Well, we could go look at it now. And then he said, also, have you looked at any Asian gram type deep value stocks recently i do so i have the japan company handbook i do get that and i get it i I buy it each each uh, quarter but um so i did look through that and stuff so that's thousands of japanese stocks uh and some of them are interesting uh and i've looked at some other stocks including i'd say there's like maybe one chinese stock that i've looked at seriously um and people know that I'm not likely to invest in a Chinese company. So, you know, there's some things are interesting. Mm-hmm. What has kept you from investing in uh, the Chinese stock? Everything that oh, we've always talked about. Oh, well, oh, so, okay. and can't and can't see management, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it. Definitely can't see management now with COVID. But, but it, you know, obviously, um, in general, uh, seeing management of a, it's, of a Chinese company and understanding what you're getting out of and stuff would not be great so that's that happens a lot with a lot of um companies that we look at not all of them sometimes it's very clear but sometimes my question is uh, what exactly is going on here with the management what are their plans what how do they think about things just need a little bit of feel for that and that's hard to get with uh the barriers that you have not so much language barrier they're they're very fluent in english and stuff but Mm. yeah okay baba yeah alibaba i don't have any comments on this really here's the thing so we can look at a quick fs there are a few things to note this business is obviously changing a huge amount. Um, and people who know what they're doing would understand that. It is, it has a very strange financial pattern, almost unprecedented among large companies and stuff, large successful companies, in that it has um, rapid revenue growth, uh, very rapid, and not materially slowing. Although it has in the most recent period, and as I expect to do in the next, but uh, very strong revenue growth, combined with strongly deteriorating uh, gross and operating margins, um, that is unusual. It is a common feature of companies like headed for bankruptcy and stuff like that. Actually, is is asset growth with with worsening um, returns on that. However. All the returns here are adequate if you do them on a marginal basis. And I've done that. I've calculated them on some things. So what I mean on a marginal basis is, for instance, you see operating margins and things like that, gross margins. But you have to take into account that the decline in it over time means that the revenue that they've added is actually at an even lower margin. So, for instance, Mm -hmm. if you had a 45% margin, you went to 41%. For most companies, that's easy to calculate. They barely grow in any one year. So the change in the margin is very similar. 
uh, for the average company as the marginal margin. So the marginal margin is very similar to the average margin. However, or I should say the margin on <laughs> the gross margin on incremental business, if you want to call it that way, because I don't want to keep saying margin all the time. Um, so what is the incremental business one here? Well, they grew 51%. So for instance, on their revenue shown here, you go up by almost uh, 40 billion or something. What was the margin on that 40 billion? Well, the margin on the 40 billion has to have watered down the 45% margin that it had a year or two ago gross. So that means we're talking about something closer to like 38% or whatever, you know, you can get a calculator and figure it out for yourself on the, um, amount of margin that you're making actually actions, even lower than that. Uh, so you're considerably lower margin on that. And the same thing with the operating margin, I believe the incremental business for the operating margin in the last year or so is probably around nine. So if you look, they went from an 18% operating margin down to 12.5. Now, incremental operating margin is kind of a weird concept because really gross is more helpful, uh, but whatever, we'll use this. So if you think about it, the business that they're adding lately, if you just imagine that the business that they had last year continued this year normally, then and assume that any deterioration in the margin is due to whatever they've added, then all their new business only has like a 9% margin. Now, a 9% margin is actually okay. And it's not bad for what you would pay for this stock. And it's not bad in terms of like returns on equity and stuff like that. It's okay. Um, but it's very unusual. And it does make you think, well, okay, so what are they doing? They could be getting into totally different businesses, which is the obvious one, that have different characteristics and maybe don't look as good on an accrual basis, but are better in other ways. That's one possibility. Uh, other possibility, though, is that there's like additional competition and that other companies that they're um, competing with in these things also are showing the same characteristics, which would be bad if that happened. As an example, you want to do Tencent. Sure. So I could show that this is not a characteristic common to all large Chinese companies like this. All right. So Tencent, you can see, has margin characteristics and stuff, while not amazing uh, over time, um, are a little bit more in line with what you see from like... Um, you know, if I, if I combine it, compared it to, uh, like a us, um, internet type companies like, like a Facebook. Google or Facebook, mm -hmm. or if I compared it to like an Activision or, uh, something like that, they, they would have similar sorts of characteristics a bit wobblier maybe for Tencent. And I don't know if that's cause we're capturing other things in here, other businesses, whatever, than you get from, um, uh, with the U S things, but still, you know, it, it's not a constant, uh, decline that's as extremely bad. However, it is a pretty constant decline. You know, um, in recent years, the operating margin has gotten pretty good versus the gross margin. Uh, so in other words, the SGNA type aspect to it is not bad. But it, it doesn't... It, Normally, I feel like you see these things get better with scale. It, yes. Now, I don't think Google has gotten better with scale, right? Uh, Alphabet. I think over time that they have um, somewhat not, right? So let's see. So their gross margin, yeah, gross margin somewhat is deteriorated not. over, yeah. Not, not, somewhat not. Right. Very minor. Yeah. Very minor. But still, they managed to get their operating margin down from 32 to 22. Yeah. Facebook is less. If we do Facebook, I, what are they called now? Meta? Meta. Yeah. Feta. No, it's Meta. Okay. Uh, they're less so, right? They, they've done a better job. Yeah, of, they're, yeah. Well, recently has changed, but they had shown real scale advantages. Yeah. 
Yeah, they grow and they're great. And I think that there are real scale advantages in the actual business, but something is happening in these companies. However, Tencent shows this characteristic of um, worsening marginal business over time. The, the new businesses that they're getting is not as good as the old, more so than Google. Google shows a little bit of that. Um, more so true with, with uh, Tencent. And then much more true with Alibaba. So, I mean, this is, you know, so this is what I mean by how far the business half had to shift. Um, gross margin in 2014, it's showing at 74, 75%. It's now 41%. And I, you know, just said that, uh, uh, like, you would expect it to actually get worse from that even. Um, the operating margin had been as high as, what, 40-something? 40 48. And then to 12, it was 30 only a few years ago. As an example, the real, not real, it's been deteriorating for a while, but the huge decline that you see in the last three years is, I mean, normally people don't invest in a business that goes from an operating margin of 28% three years ago to 12 now and is growing at seven. And in those years grew at 70, grew at 41%, 29% and 51%. Yeah. That's pretty unprecedented. I mean, for a company to grow that fast with seeing those levels of declines. And I just talked about before that, like, um, yeah, Amazon is quite the reverse. So early on, it didn't show that, but it's gotten better and better over time. Now, Amazon has a weird thing recently, if you look, which is they've had an incredible increase in capital intensity. So I think I calculated that Amazon is now probably has like PP&E is probably equal to the U.S. railroad industry. I think roughly true. So th their actual people say they're asset light, but actually I think they're financing about the kind of PP&E that you have with the top couple of railroads if you look quarterly. So if we look quarterly, we can see that PP&E, yeah, it's at about $200 billion or something on their books. Fully depreciated major railroads, you know, it's not that different than that. So they, I expect that they will pass the major railroads pretty, uh, industry as a whole, that there'll be more capital invested in Amazon in uh, property planning equipment than in all of railroads in the U.S. within a pretty short period. So um, that's odd. But we can see that in the cash flow. So, for instance, they produce no cash, free cash flow. I mean, allegedly, they have free cash flow in the most recent period, if we go annual, last year. But, however, that's all stock comp. So, you can see. So, trailing 12 months, they show that they have $54 million and they're spending 50, $54 billion. $54 billion, excuse me, and $52 billion. Used to, you know, smaller yeah, companies. smaller companies. And $52 billion in, in PP&E. Uh, however, stock comp was uh, $12 billion. So, Amazon has no free cash flow. They have negative free cash flow right now. Not a problem. I'm not against that, but you know that, uh, you know, five years ago they had very little PP&E. It's all in very recently, the last, uh, really three years, 2019, 2020, and uh, actually it's really the last two years, but you do see a jump up in the last like five and then much more so recently. So that's extreme and we have reasons why we know that's happening. So maybe Amazon in the future will deteriorate in terms of returns on capital. That would not be surprising because they're just adding so much more capital and they're getting into tougher businesses that way. But for now, it's looking better, the numbers that we're seeing from them. However, and this is where it gets complicated. So like gross margins got better, operating margins got better, but this is what I don't understand about it. All these companies are changing what businesses they're in. They're a platform or something, uh, a marketplace, but then they use that to change into different kinds of businesses, some which are better, some which are worse. I read a couple of books on Amazon, and the interesting thing is I kind of came away after looking at the financial statements and reading those books with the idea that maybe Amazon has never succeeded in the idea it kind of originally sold investors. They originally sold investors it was going to be a bookstore, and it's been successful there. 
But the idea of it being an everything store itself, I think probably did not work in the US. My guess is that Amazon makes its money from books and media, which were always a great business. They were known to be a great business. They were a great business when Barnes & Noble were doing it, when Amazon was selling it early on, whatever. Any categories beyond it. So, but it also includes things like selling people digital videos, digital music. I agree. They make money on that. Um, so we exclude, you know, your Kindles, your all that stuff. Put that aside. Um, actually selling products that other stores sell that are not books and media of any kind. Uh, directly. I don't know if they make money on that in the U.S. And I think they don't in other countries. Uh, but what they do now is they fulfill for other parties. So they're a marketplace. They're like an eBay. Yep. They make money on that. And they're an advertising platform. And they make money on that. And then I've said before that, like, I think in the long run, Amazon, you know, takes a lot of search from Google. Because if you're thinking about a thing, you don't search Google, you search Amazon, right? Even if you eventually buy it somewhere else. I mean, I do that. I search on Amazon, learn about the product, and then I go buy it wherever I want. Um, so... Because there's just things on which Amazon can't beat the price and it's, you know, whatever. So if, I mean, it's just the same price, so there's no reason not to. But there's a lot more independent information on Amazon. So um, they have improving numbers those ways, but it may be because of what they're shifting from, right? So the biggest one is is Amazon Web Services, right? Sure. So that's the biggest thing that we're seeing having a result in them. That seems to be an amazing business, Right. We also know that advertising is a really good business. We know that operating a marketplace the way that like eBay does is a really good business. Um, and probably, like I said, the books and media thing where it was originally had was a good business. So maybe what we're seeing is a lot of that shift in terms of the businesses they're in that reflects good things about Amazon. And that may be the case with these other companies like Alibaba. It may be that's a shift from certain businesses that look good in reported earnings to businesses that don't. The argument from the investors would be these businesses that don't actually are great and will grow over time and, and all of that. Um, Amazon, you have a lot more familiarity with the management and all of that. I think I mentioned the the previous management of Alibaba, I was not fond of. So I wasn't going to invest in the company when when that management was, was around in the earlier days and stuff. So... Um, but this is a very high level one and we can't see you're seeing the consolidated stuff of all that and you can't see the more um information uh on like a granular level and understand it and i don't understand china so the my total overall from it is the momentum stuff in business momentum we tend to like to invest in companies where we see some business momentum is very bad worsening the price is good the price versus what it, it's it's price as a standalone thing right now, like uh, without growth is really good. And given what it'll grow at is really good and will create value. However, you know, it's, it's getting so much worse over time that you wonder if that'll keep getting worse and why that's happening. So it, it just seems from a financial statement level that it's going in the wrong direction and has been going in the wrong direction for years, worsening competition and all that stuff um, while having rapid asset growth, which is like the number one thing we avoid is competition is getting worse. Asset growth is really high. You don't want to invest mm-hmm, in that normally. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, price is good and growth is good. And so it'd be projected that it would create a lot of value even at these levels. If it just stayed at this level or the level that would be worse in a year, even if it stayed at 9% or 7% or whatever margin that it could get down to. Um, how do you handicap that though? I'd, I don't know how to. 
you know, if it's a situation in which a bunch of companies are throwing constant competition into it and stuff, then it... Yeah, good luck. Yeah, it, it just isn't good that way. What do you think Munger likes about the company? I think... I don't know. I think he's tried to learn a, a lot about its position. I think that, you know, from the outside, hearing what people say about it and everything, some companies like Alibaba and Tencent do have a strong position similar to Amazon or something in people's lives and the ability to do, um, to be durable and to extend into other products and things like that. Sure. Um, but there's obviously a shift in the business just as there's a shift in Amazon's business. A lot of these things have changed a lot. I mean, it's easy to go back and look and, you know, I mean, Google's, Google bought YouTube, but it's the same business that it always was. Mm-hmm. Facebook is the same business that it always was, even though they, they bought some stuff and it's done some different things, but it's very similar. Um, if you had to pick one of the FANG stocks, which one would you be most interested in? Google? I like all the FANG stocks, probably. Um, the one that I'd be most sure in the long run would be Netflix. Uh, however, Netflix has a bad bargaining position. So I don't know if Netflix will make a lot of money and have a low cost of capital. So I don't know if it'll create a lot of value. It's in a much worse business than advertiser supported media Ad supported media, which is Facebook and Google is an amazing business. It's an amazing business. If you're a newspaper, it's an amazing business. If you're a magazine, it's an amazing business. If you're a uh, local TV mm-hmm. station or something, and it's an amazing business for them too. But so it's just a better industry. And I like to pick ones that I think are better industries that way. But in terms of position, who has the position that's most durable in the long run um, in people's lives, I would say Netflix. Do you think the industry of streaming is just going to be like five main companies? Mm -hmm. I mean, others will exist, but you need Mm -hmm. sufficient scale, right? Um, there was a lot more before, but remember they're propped up by the cable companies and Mm -hmm. stuff, which were providing the amount of scale for them to do it. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. So you need a lot of scale. Most of those will go under. They don't have that scale and you'll, they'll consolidate them. And, uh, they've all been doing that, putting original, making sure that all the content is on them. Originally, you mentioned the office is just peacock thing, right? Um, Paramount has made sure now, I think as of a couple of days ago that all Star Trek things, as they each roll off, will all go back to only Paramount. Paramount. You watch Yellowstone? No. Have you heard of that? Yes. That's really good. I just started it yeah. actually over the holiday. Yeah. It's really good. So Paramount is a fairly weak studio. Um, there's different like tiers to movie studios. Now there's kind of Disney. So it used to be there'd be majors and there's a little bit of minor. Um, there, you know, they call mini majors. Um, the, now you got Disney above everyone else. It's in a, its own category. But then below that, you have that class of uh, Sony, Warners, um, and Universal and things like that. And then really now below that, you have Paramount. So Paramount is sort of uh, dropped to that level as a movie studio. However, still a movie studio and has the streaming service and all that. So, yeah. Same thing we were talking about with, with Peacock. It's certainly a weaker service and everything. But it could be that it gets in there. Yeah, no, it's not Disney Plus or HBO Max. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it could be one of those services. Yeah, they have a big advantage over others that way. So Netflix. Well, but the business is really tough. Business is very, very tough. What Netflix needs to do over time, which I think they're doing, is um, that they have to get lots of low-quality, cheap, um, guilty pleasure, 
time suck sort of things and just fill up their stuff with those, you know, the programmer type stuff instead of um, high quality type things, right? Because, and I think they will, and they know that, and they have all these things that just are based on how much time people spend on the service instead of how much they, you know, how many awards they win and things like that. Going around trying to like buy the best movies and things, that's hard to do. Um, a lot of these studios recently, you know, during COVID and stuff, sold movies. Now, generally, they sell the not-so-good movies, the movies they know have problems with them. So, like, Amazon bought uh, the Jack Ryan movie. Uh, what did they call that one? Michael B. Jordan. Uh, I, I forget what it was. But um, they bought that one. But that obviously was one that they were, the studio selling probably was not happy, you know, with, with how it came out. And um, you've seen that before. Netflix, I think, was one of the ones that did it with... Um, they bought the a very... Production completely fell apart, went way over budget, was a disaster. Um, Cloverfield Paradox. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So that was one where they did three different movies in it, had different success with each of the other ones. Netflix was willing to buy it basically if they could advertise on, like, I think the Super Bowl was what they could advertise on or something for that one. That was one of the first ones to do that, even though it may not have been a great movie or whatever. Um, they were willing to pay a very high price for it because they had a name. It was attached to a few other movies. People might, you know, sign up. They can't do that kind of thing in the future. You don't want to be doing a lot of like the, they did a movie Red Notice and stuff like that, that sort of thing. But a lot of the, you know, you know, because it's a public company, people talk about it, Thunderbird Entertainment. Okay. Right. Yeah. They, mm-hmm. You want to buy the stuff that they're selling, mm-hmm. fill up your, um, uh, fill up your um, service with all that stuff. You know what? I just thought of this. I thought it was funny. I wanted to say it. Somebody commented on our YouTube video. They said the most admirable thing about this podcast is how much of a movie nerd Jeff is and how much he knows about theaters and the industry. That was funny. So so Thunderbird says that it has high quality, you know, entertainment and all those sorts of things. And that's fine. But basically it, it produces in Canada for places that need content, you know, to fill up a lot of time that... that is fine. I'm not saying that it's bad content or whatever, but it's not. Um, it, it's not uh, prestige type content. It's it is um, to fill up a lot of time. Some of them are reality show things. Some of them are animated things. You know, Netflix had a deal with DreamWorks um, to put out animated uh, series based on their animated movies. So, you know, give us three seasons of uh, Kung Fu Panda one. Give us, uh, you know, those sorts of things, which is kind of what Disney would do years ago. Disney would have these series that they knew how long the run would be, whether it be, you know, 90 episodes or something like that, um, of let's do an Aladdin series, let's do a Hercules series, whatever. These animated series that filled up a lot of time and stuff. I think they they aired like a kid's block or something on on um, Fox. I know that Fox used Pokemon and some other things then, so probably. Um, but anyway that kind of thing that you need. So if you have a lot, a series like that, you can entertain kids a lot. If you have your HGTV or your British baking shows and things like that, you can entertain a lot of, um, women and, and older couples and things like that. So you need a lot of that stuff and a lot of reality TV and things like that. Netflix will need that stuff. A lot of it can be in house or you can have a few you work with like Thunderbird and stuff where you, you know, the prices work out and that can be good. I just think the actual business Netflix was originally in, of being a place to show movies by major studios is a really tough business and not what you want to be in. You can build a business off of that, but you don't want to be going 
you don't want to be trying to get the rights to Marvel, um, because it's very DC expensive. superheroes, um, Mission Impossible, James Bond. You know, that's, that's not what you want to be doing. Um, it's very expensive, and they have all the power in that relationship. And you're going to get just like a window and stuff like that. But HBO successfully transitioned from that, from being you know home box office, being that a window where you showed recent movies, to being all about series. And Netflix can do the same thing. Netflix, I think of more as a TV service, even though it's thought of as a movie thing. Random, off topic yeah. a little bit. Why is it that some TV series they really you know get popular three or four seasons in game of thrones was like that game of thrones was like that absolutely very unusual right yeah yeah almost unprecedented that way now one it's on hbo so that's a smaller number of people can watch and everything it is way outside what most people will watch so fantasy is not a normal category that's had large TV audiences ever. Totally not my genre either. Okay. But I love Game of Thrones. Right. And then I guess social media and all of that helped. Uh. Historically, that had been not true for TV series. So historically, TV series would peak in their third year. And so you get your, you come out uh, on a major network and stuff, you know, the, the broadcast networks, you advertise it a ton. You're always going to get big numbers for the premiere. Then it drops off and it's a question of how much it holds versus, you know, what it had um what it had as a lead-in and stuff like that and how much it uh how many fast people are dropping off in the during the season and then subsequent seasons but very rare for a tv series to keep growing after like three seasons a few did and had like a resurgence and i don't know why i know that like um originally law and order svu would have had like lower ratings than the original law and order and stuff and then i don't know eight nine ten years in it actually was still growing you know its audience started to grow which is very unusual for a tv series but normally yeah as strange as it sounds tv series normally after about three seasons if you look at their ratings no matter how good their ratings are it is pretty much slightly worse each year um the novelty wears off and everything you know even if a series runs for 12 years it may be that it was basically in decline for nine of those but if it started with you know 30 million people originally watching it and it ended with 10 then it's okay mm-hmm. um yeah so game of thrones was a totally unique situation that way yeah some of course have done better in syndicate well they don't, you know in um streaming and stuff now in their later reruns so um you know office did fine as a tv series but way it, more popular now yeah and there's been some that have been very strong in reruns some shows were very strong originally and very strong in reruns too like obviously friends is one of the biggest tv shows but also did really well in reruns tv shows that people have forgotten if we you know could come up with some from the late 60s through the 80s and stuff occasionally you had top tv shows that had they were not very popular in reruns i don't know why they were just a big thing for a few years and then not that popular where they have, others have a lot of longevity these streaming things like the ones that have a lot of longevity, mm-hmm. you know. It's interesting when you watch a film that or a TV show that was filmed, you know, even 10 years ago and you watch it in the present and you're like, wow, this would never air today. Yeah. Because of certain jokes or things yes. like that for the yeah. fear of being canceled. That's how The Office was. The first couple of seasons, I was like, whoa. Well, the these, yeah. these jokes would <laughs> upset some people. Well, the first season the first mini season or whatever the office right is doing the uk yeah Yeah. it was that's the worst season ever if if i'm gonna tell someone to watch it i'm like just get through the first season and then it you know gets i guess you could just start watching after that right yeah i wanted to say anything about parks and parks and rec also was they redid it after about you know the first few episodes Mm -hmm. yeah which is the same sort of concept yeah with the game of thrones that Mm -hmm. last season the production budget for every episode yeah. it was like a movie it was and the entire first 100 season, plus million yeah and the entire first season of game of thrones was less 
then it, Warner Brothers studio um, pays for many movies. Certainly, I yeah, I mean, first first two seasons of Game of Thrones, probably in terms of if we add up like marketing and production, everything, each season was probably cheaper than doing a real serious Warner Brothers studio movie. So that's the trade-off they have to decide on now, because mm-hmm. I don't know, like, uh, you know, we mentioned movie stuff before. We haven't followed up with all of those, but since we talked about that, Spider-Man has been a very big movie. That was your prediction. Uh, um, well, I, yeah, I predict that quarter would be big and stuff, but some other things didn't do so well. Warner Brothers movies, which are day and date, uh, they're no longer, but they were during 2020 and 2021 on um, HBO Max have done quite badly. Most recently, they're, they're delay, you know, they're um, long after the original series sequel in a sense for the Matrix. So Matrix 4. We, you know. Did you watch that? I did. Yeah. It was terrible. <laughs> I had no idea what was going on the whole time. Yeah. I was confused. I try not to express opinions on movies, but it was awful. There are sometimes movies where I think it is a mistake to have greenlit them. Yeah. And I thought it was a mistake to have greenlit the the Matrix one for a variety of reasons, including the fact that it's very hard to do a sequel so many years after. The big money, one of the categories that are huge money losers, that I mean half of them do great. But if you look at really big flops versus budget and marketing, um, for studios, one really big category is, uh, I think the numbers even has a tag for it that they call delayed sequels. So we talked a little bit about like, basically you want to put out a sequel two to three years between movies. Every two to three years you put out a movie, like two and a half years would be perfect. So if you got Spider-Man or something, every two and a half years, there should be a Spider-Man movie. That's the way to be long enough that people are, aren't like, Oh wait, did a whole movie come out and I didn't notice it? You know, they think, Oh, this is a new movie. Yeah. I saw that. They keep, keep track of it. Two and a half years, you know, you know, but it's not so long that people forget about it. Whereas the ones you have to be careful about are like the Ghostbusters one was a really weird one because they rebooted it with different casts and stuff. And then they wanted to go in a totally different direction, but the really popular Ghostbusters are from a very long time ago. So those are the risky ones, you know? And, um, Matrix is really bad that way. Whereas, you know, you're you're rebooting. You're you're not rebooting. You're doing a sequel to something a decade and a half after. And each of the subsequent two movies were less popular in theaters than you know. So you had the you had Matrix, which is the best liked. The Matrix Two does fine on that because it has a lot of um, goodwill from the first Matrix. But then you see a significant drop down to the third Matrix, and you got to be careful with those. Just you know, if if um, if people don't like a movie, you have to be very careful with doing a sequel of it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the ones that work really well tend to be a movies well liked, but our budget was too high. Let's do a sequel that costs a bit less and let's do it fast. Like those mm-hmm. kinds of things tend yeah. to do well. Whereas the matrix one, not so much. And, uh, it maybe should have gone straight to HBO or something with that. I don't know. It may have helped them get more HBO subscriptions. I don't know. Obviously Warner brothers had two really bad failures in the last few months because no one, even though I was not optimistic about the matrix, um, four or about suicide squad two, we'll call it. Um, I'm changing the names here just to make them clear because the actual names are confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, those did really badly versus their budgets. So it's unusual for a movie that costs almost $200 million to bring in as little as those did. Mm-hmm. did. Um, I don't know, but I, I mean, I think matrix, the one we're talking about here, the, f- the fourth one, will end with like $50 million maybe. And it probably costs close to $200 million. That was terrible too. Yeah. So Suicide Squad is also not so uh, great performance and also probably cost a lot of money that way. You know, I'm sure our listeners won't be surprised to hear that uh, for Christmas I gave you a, 
Cinemark gift card. Oh, Cinemark gift there you card. Go. Oh. He hasn't even opened it yet. I, I just gave it to him it. in the car right over here. So there you go. Yeah. Surprise. I'm going to be your agent and get you on a couple of uh, movie uh, podcasts to talk about the industry. How about that? Uh, next question. Yeah. How do you avoid groupthink? Especially when you're on Twitter, Valley Investors oh, Club, well, Microcap that, Club, that's the one Corner Berkshire you'd Fairfax. You have to worry about more. I don't have to worry about groupthink because I don't really talk to groups. I don't participate with groups. Right? One thing that I think is actually unique about you, and I can't, I mean, it's very true to the core, I mean this when I say it, is I don't think you feel any better or worse if you're involved in a stock and other investors that you like and respect are also in the stock. No, I've said that before. <laughs> if you, uh, the, Someone asked something about that with, um, like, the, to the core. I believe that there was an issue. There was a thing where Goldman Sachs had sold something to somebody, and there you remember there's a whole court case over it. But anyway, and people, some people were asking, well, like, wouldn't that change your opinion if you knew who was selling the stock? And I said, I, I would happily buy a stock that I knew Warren Buffett was the one selling it to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's why you have to operate. That's why you have to think. I think it goes against human nature, though, especially. You know, if you're a part of Twitter and all these, you know, Corner Berkshire, Microcap Club, Focus Compounding, Valley Investor Club, whatever it is, that's hard to do for a lot of people. Right. There are a few issues. One is the rooting issue, which we have to be careful about. And even when I was talking about like movies and, and things like that, it, I do make, to try to analyze things and stuff, I do sort of make predictions and, you know, okay, all right, I'll write this down and make this prediction. But you don't want it. But even something as little as that, people root to have their prediction be true when they don't even have money on the line. Like okay, this I I want that Matrix movie to be bad because I said it was gonna flop. Yeah, you know, sure. I want that. The, um, and so imagine what it's like with stocks. Imagine what it's like when you get a group of people together and you're all rooting for that. You know, it's sort of like politics and stuff. You know, imagine if you got a group of people who all support the same candidate together to have a party on the the night of an election. Um, that's fine. They can do that. I would not pull them to see what the outcome is likely to be. Mm-hmm. You know, that that would be a group think that probably would not be good, what's happening there. Even if they were experts on the topic beforehand. But, you know, if they happen to all be experts who supported some candidate and they all got together and we're all talking with each other, they're probably going to come out to an unrealistic sort of um, way of thinking. So I think that's hard. How do you avoid group think with Twitter and all of those sorts of things? Because you're more involved with lots of things that... Believe it or not, believe stuff. it or not, I don't think a lot of the companies that we invest in, other people are so interested in. Yeah. So that probably helps. I mean, yeah. Anytime I look at a company in the early stages, I do put the cash tag in on Twitter and see if anyone else has posted research or anything like that, just to see. But I think the biggest thing that you've preached and that I try to do is to form your own conclusions as opposed to having your conclusions formed for you from other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I like all these services, and there are ways to get ideas. Totally. to get into to have interesting thoughts from people on them yeah I, i've definitely gotten gone in a certain direction because of things people have said like i've looked more into something because of the things people said so it is helpful but yeah we it's something i think about too is like how do you know that you're not drinking your own kool-aid absolutely that's the biggest that is a problem that's we the do biggest a podcast thing. and that's yeah. a problem yeah i also would like to say on that topic of not expressing any opinion about it and stuff i'm not expressing a negative opinion about alibaba i don't understand it and uh, stuff like that. I'm just pointing out something that's un- very unusual in the financial statements. We happen to be able to see these financial statements, and I don't have know much about the company. Yeah, you know, I read some book on it or something. Um, that's about it. So when I say something like that, all I mean is the you know the literally I try to keep it to the two things that I said basically, which is it's cheap, uh, you know, on the current period stuff. It also has 
a very unusual pattern, which is you're rapidly growing while showing evidence of extreme competition or something like that. Or for some reason, extremely the new businesses you're mm-hmm. entering are extremely uh, tough. So that's very unusual. And I try to do that with any of these things we're talking about. So I try not to be just totally positive on a stock, but say, well, here's the good things and here's the bad things and keep that, you know, here are the risks and there's still risks no matter what. And um, not to let it shade all you're thinking about a stock. I don't know if that's the halo effect or what it is, but there's some things where if you're really positive on a stock, like, okay, the stock's really cheap. So you like the stock because it's really cheap and you should buy it. That can be very good. I try that not to let that trick me into, okay, they're probably going to use that money to buy back. I mean, we just talked about OTC markets. Yeah. Should they maybe do something with the cash? Yeah. Do I think they will? No. I still think the management's good. I don't mind the management at all. I think they're good. Um, and, but I, do, I try not to let that fool me into thinking, oh, they're definitely gonna do stuff with this cash. There's not really a pattern, you know, based on their past pattern, I shouldn't expect that. Sometimes you read write-ups and mm-hmm. people draw those conclusions. They assume that they're going to do something with the cash, well, but then you look at the history of management and they've never even alluded right. to doing anything with it. Right. A lot of times people assume, or that they'll sell the asset off. Right. Something like that. A lot of times people assume if someone's honest, capable, owns a lot of the stock, that of course they're going to do whatever I think they should do because if they're smart, I mean, anyone who's smart will do what I think they should do. Right. I mean, that's usually people thinking is, uh, I know the right thing to do. They'll do the right thing because they're smart and because they have the right incentives. Um, and sometimes that will be true and sometimes it won't, but you got to look at the past history and all of that. Something that I think is interesting and it only gets proven more and more one out of 10 CEOs, that you know we study or we talk with i would literally say probably one out of ten really understands how to create value in their stock over the long term and what that actually means yeah and there's and there's other ones that are perfectly you know great operators do great with their business will continue to grow but i really believe that one out of ten probably really understand hey i could pull these levers to create a lot of value yeah whereas if you read um like read business management books, you know, books for managers and, and, you know, they're all about books on leadership and doing this and that and whatever, which is fine. But there's basically nothing about how to, to make your business or your business unit or whatever as valuable as possible to the owners, even though in theory, that's one of your most important things that you're doing. And when you reach actually the CEO level, it, it is very much one of the most important. And it's really hard um, to find CEOs who think that way. Yeah. A lot of times it's accidental. To be honest, a lot of great businesses are somewhat accidental that they create as much value as they did. Uh, it happened to line up, right? It happened to the things happened to align that the way they wanted to run the business and have a lot of success for employees and for growth and for whatever things also matched up with making a ton of money for investors. But it wasn't really setting out to do that. Mm-hmm. They didn't take a hard look at it and decide on that. And for others, it was um, some experience that they had early on either at a different company, that's common, or like some bad period in their industry or something that changed their thinking on it, you know, where they're able to look back and say, oh, we didn't create value here. Oh, the stock didn't do well for a while. Um, How do we change that? Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, most CEOs are in there for a few years. They don't have that kind of experience. Even though the company may have had that experience, they usually weren't close enough to the top to have seen that and had an understanding of it. yeah, so they don't have as like holistic a view of it or whatever. Yeah, I, I agree with that. M- most CEOs, you know, not that they're good or bad, it, it, you know, but they're they don't have a great idea of exactly what things inside the company drive value for the shareholders mm-hmm. as much. Even though they may have very good ideas about how to 
um, operate the company, how to market things. You know, they have great operations and marketing ideas and stuff. Different people usually. I think a trend over the next, you know, whatever near term, you're going to see a lot of CEOs get on Twitter and hear from their investors. They may. When you do Definitely. see some, you know, certain CEOs or high level executives involved in Fintuit, or at least kind of pay attention to what investors are saying. Right. It does. Uh, there is a difference there. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's like AMC where he's, you know, no, no, no. Communicating I, like I that. agree. You have to remember that for most, for a lot of CEOs, except for a few institutional investors who will talk to them, um, they do have a faceless shareholder base. And they don't necessarily have a good idea of what shareholders want in their particular stock. And sometimes it's quite different, the base that they've attracted versus other uh, companies. And that's one thing I don't think they ever think about. Most CEOs don't think about, you know, even when they think, oh, I'd like a little more action in my stock or, or whatever it might be, or a little more attention to it. They don't think what kind of shareholders will I get. Oh, sure. Yeah. And if you're going to run it like a growth company and whatever things, I mean, OTC markets, you know, they don't need necessarily value investors in it. It would be fine for them if they had very growth oriented, long-term compounder type people focused on it. But also it might work fine for value investors who are interested in moats and things. Uh, but you don't want to attract a lot of short-term oriented people into a, into a stock like that. Um, because, you know, it's going to go up a lot and down a lot with the level of speculative activity there. And they're just going to say, well, that's the cycle and we're moving on. And, you know, we'll see a lot of these kinds of cycles and, um, they're just the wrong kinds of shareholders for them. Mm -hmm. I love when I see a, a CEO of a company or someone of, of one of our portfolio companies like my tweets, okay. which are on, you know, business related yeah. stuff. So mm -hmm. I'm like, yes, there we go. Yep. Take notes. Okay. They may have read Dale Carnegie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm being manipulated. <laughs> what caught you by surprise in 2021 from an investment perspective? Uh, across the board, things we owned performed better as stocks than I would have expected. I would have not expected such a, I would have expected a wider distribution of outcomes for them. And we've talked about this and I have no idea why that is. Uh, I don't know why things did the way they did in 2020 versus 2021, even when there weren't huge differences in business results. We've said maybe it's rotation of some things, but I also don't understand why there's meaningful sort of correlation when we're in different industries, different PEs, different whatever, towards some of the things that we own and not so much into some things that have been popular previously. I don't understand it. And there's probably finance professors who can explain it with, you know, duration or with a cyclical rotation between things or whatever the investors tastes and things, but it is something that's, that's tough. I don't know why. Um, what surprised you? What surprised me? It was a very eventful year news wise. Okay. As in uh, things that don't actually have to do much with the portfolio. So things like with Bitcoin GameStop. Um, okay. I think uh, Munger investing in Baba was a big surprise for me. Yeah, that, that's what surprised I, me. I feel like, I mean, uh, absent, you know, the Fed and interest rates and all that sort of stuff. Maybe that's what I would say. The biggest surprise to me, and maybe it shouldn't be a surprise just because of what they did in 2020 and, you know, 2021, has been the top of, co of conversation with basically every investor I speak to is very macro nowadays. Okay. Yeah. What's the Fed going to do? What's interest rates? What's going to happen with interest rates? All sort of things like that. Um, but other than that, I felt like it was a pretty normal year, I would say. Mm -hmm. 
Market was up a lot. Market was up a lot. There you go. That, that was a big surprise yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah when it finished yeah. like 27%. That's a big surprise. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, and so normally... Uh, There's certain things that are very cheap that you would associate with higher inflation prints and stuff right. like that. That mm-hmm. was a big surprise to me. Yeah. But so, again, I don't know. I don't know. Over, year over year, it's very hard to predict. So normally if the stock market goes up 27%, let's say, and that happens in a year after, which was also up... Um, th- we would tend to expect to lag considerably, right? Like really considerably. And that many of our stocks almost across the board would not do as well in an environment like that. And and so that's what I meant about surprising me about the, but of course, you know, you can dig in and say, okay, well, yes, the S and P 500 was up by a lot, but there's actually a lot of stocks that have been pretty popular before that weren't so strong Actually, when I mentioned like, you know, last year, I think um, there was a surprising number of funds that were up 100%. You had your like, um, uh, I don't know what you call them, the, you know, the most innovative sorts of companies that maybe not didn't have earnings and things like that, but they were cutting edge on whatever kinds of things went up a lot. And those things didn't do so well last year in 2021. Um, Some other things did well. And so the S&P 500 overall did well. But it actually wasn't the most, um, maybe I guess the most like growth extreme oriented actually the year before had been more so that way. So maybe that has something to do with the performance of of our more value things or whatever. I don't even like to call it value, just whatever our style is. I don't mm-hmm. know what it is. What's interesting is I think if you ask a lot of investors what, if you took a poll, and, and I'm saying this because I've seen these polls on Twitter. Okay. The expected rate of return over the next 10 years, for example, in the market, yeah, it's all pretty low. I okay. think people's okay. expectations are pretty low. But then you have these massive prints. There have been surveys of, see, we're seeing certain people on Twitter. Mm-hmm. There's surveys of the general investing public and what they expect. Or I shouldn't say general investing public, but they do the surveys of like all clients of, of a... Um, you know, Main Street type retail broker, um, you know, discount broker. And... Um, they have really high expectations. Like so. 15 plus, 20 yeah. plus? Yeah. Yeah. So usually they expect whatever the last like two years or so or, you know, mm-hmm. that's usually the expectations is what happens. Um, you have a bunch of value investors selling you and stuff are mm-hmm. very negative, right? So there's some people clicking like, you know, zero, 0%, <laughs> zero to 5%, whatever. Yeah. Interesting. Here's a topic that we could do a whole podcast on. Okay. Our last five minutes on a stock instead of our first five minutes on a stock. What makes you ultimately buy or not buy a stock? Mm, probably management is management. the last five minutes. Yeah, management's never going to be the reason that I buy a stock in the first place. But it may be the reason I won't buy a stock no matter how much I like it and stuff is ultimately something about management and uh, things like that. So I would say probably stuff like that like management um we've visited sites of things that we've invested in i've there's definitely a case where i said you know i like everything here but i kind of feel like i need to see it yeah right? i like everything here but i kind of feel like i need to talk to the people there in some way um which is good to do by the way because if the stock ever falls or gets pretty volatile it's good to have be like hey this is actually a real business <laughs> like the psychological thing that comes with doing that also, there's commitment bias and stuff like that that you got to be careful of. But I really do believe it's good to go and see a lot of the companies that you're investing and be like, no, this is a real business. Yeah. They do operate. They have employees, managers. Yeah. So for a lot of things we invest in would be like that. But of course, that wouldn't be necessary if we we're investing in Apple. 
No. You know, it wouldn't even be necessary in some um, other sorts of businesses that are much smaller. I can get all the information that I need from what they put out and from hearing them talk about it and stuff. But for less community of co- communicative companies, um, that is true. I would need to know that. For financial things, it's almost always the case. I need to have a little bit of a feel for um, management or culture or whatever you want to call it. Um, things like that. There's been some where a site visit or something is basically like, okay, so we know they're cheap and stuff. We need to see if the place is like falling apart and stuff mm-hmm. or if they're the kind of cheap that the customer experience is okay. Um, it seems positive that way, but behind the scenes, they're really efficient that way, you know, and that's what we'd like to see. We know from the financials how efficient they are, but you don't know until you set foot in it, whether they're skimping on things they need to in the future and whatever, you know, um, that's even true. It could be supermarkets or something. You kind of have to take a look at the, uh, some of them. I'm not saying you have to see a thousand of them if the company has a thousand, but some feel for that because that's not really information that you're going to get that they're behind the times and updating them and stuff. But you can get guesses about that on on capital allocation from the financial statements. Most of it's the financial statements, you know, 90% or something of it can be gathered from that and other sources online and all of that usually. But yeah, I'd say the last five minutes probably has something to do with management. Certainly if I liked everything about a company and then we didn't buy it, it was something about management and direction they're heading and stuff that I just kind of bring myself to do it. Mm. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you are tuning in, hit the subscribe button. Check out all the content we put out there on the internet. The best place to get access to everything Focus Compounding is to follow me on Twitter, which is at Focused Compound. Uh, We used QuickFS in this podcast to go over the financials. So if you want to sign up for QuickFS, go to quickfs.net and in the checkout, tell them that you came from Focus Compounding. Thank you so much for the support. And we will see you in the next podcast.